Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Let's begin in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he had told you this while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Jonah and Mary the mother of James and the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Lord, it is just, it's so, so glorious to be in a text like this. It's difficult to, to wrap our minds around the importance, the magnitude of what took place there on that Easter morning so long ago. It's words that we kind of take for granted sometimes, Lord, because we're so familiar with them. Uh, We hear them regularly, not just on Easter, but throughout all of the year long, especially as we think of things like your gospel and partake of the Lord's Supper each and every week. But Lord, as we celebrate this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, please take these truths. Take this word. Take this resurrection, Lord, and may our hearts just marvel at it and be reminded of the very fact that if we don't have this resurrection, then we have nothing. Lord, we rejoice and we worship you now for your great namesake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the very beginning, the Bible, it begins with an expectation. Don't know if you know this or you've thought about this, but it begins with an expectation. Now, it doesn't begin Genesis 1-1 with an expectation. Genesis 1-1 begins within the beginning God, and then it has God not only performing the work of creation, but revealing himself to all of creation. And from the very beginning of Genesis 1-1, we have God's self-revelation given to us all the way up through the very end of the Bible in Revelation twenty-two twenty-one. But the anticipation or the expectation, pardon me, that I'm speaking about begins when God creates man, the ultimate uh, 
aspect, attribute, character, actor, person within his creation. Because mankind was given something that no other part of all of creation was endowed with, and that is the very image of God. God, because of his plan and purpose from eternity past, to do a work in humankind so that he might be glorified for all eternity, endowed humankind, endowed mankind with his very own image. This consists of things that none of the rest of the animal kingdom has. Conscience, rationality, emotions, Things that when we look at the attributes of God, we can see some of those communicable attributes on display in us and in us alone amongst all creation. But that anticipation or that expectation is this, that man upon his creation would live forever. There was a point in time where people didn't exist, and then there was a point in time where they would exist, but from that point on, People will live forever. Now this is true still to this day. People will live forever. We don't know the exact destination or disposition of the soul for each and every single individual. But the fact that eternity is something that is expected of all people who have ever lived is something we find in the very beginning pages of Scripture. When God gives his covenant to Adam and he says, I've given you everything in this garden and you may partake freely of anything except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the day you partake of that tree, you will surely die. The expectation is that there would come a point in time where he had obeyed faithfully and not given into that temptation and would therefore be given of the tree of life that God says is also there in the garden to eat. We know this is a covenant. The Bible tells us that in the book of Amos that God establishes with Adam there in the very beginning. So the great expectation of humankind is that we would live forever. But the problem is, is that Adam failed to keep his end of the covenant, his part of the bargain. His responsibility was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, he failed in that and failed most miserably. There upon taking of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, he did in many ways die that day. Now we might say, well, he didn't certainly die physically. Well, no, but that was certainly the beginning of the process of that physical death. We might say, well, did he actually die spiritually? Because, I mean, God went and sacrificed and covered them, so there seems to be atonement given there in the very beginning in the garden. And that perhaps might be true, but we do know one thing is the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sins. But this was certainly a picture of what was to come. It was certainly a foreshadowing of events that were to come and to take place in human history. The Bible says in the book of Romans in chapter 5, a passage that 
most of us are going to be keenly aware of, that death came through Adam. In fact, it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death is something that, as people, we should be focused on occasionally, from time to time at least, in our minds and in our thinking and our thoughts. I remember as a young man, as even a high schooler, laying in my bed before I was a Christian at night with all the lights out and me just with my own thoughts in my own head, contemplating my own existence and contemplating death, eternity, and those kind of things. And it absolutely terrified me. I thought, this, this might be all I have here right now, and if this is all I have, I am not in a good place. But is there more to life? Is there more than just this, than, than me and myself? And so before I was a Christian, before I had been born again, before I was united to Christ, I was very keenly aware of my own mortality. And there was even this understanding in my mind that I knew this wasn't going to be the end, even if I died there in that moment. But I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know where I was going to end up, that kind of thing. And I think that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everybody has that within themselves. Those that would say they don't have merely suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They've taken what they know about God and what about themselves, and they have buried it deep, deep, deep down and declared that they know better than the image of God that is within them and that there is nothing beyond the grave. But the fact of the matter is, there is. You know it. I know it. I don't have to persuade anybody of it. It's the truth, and it is self-evident, if there ever was a self-evident truth. You will die. I will die. Might be by virus. Might be by accident. Might be by some disease. Might be by a good old age. But one way or another, one thing is for certain for each and every single one of you is there will come a time where you will breathe your last, you will close your eyes, and you will move on from this part of eternity to the final part of eternity where you will be forever conscious, aware, a soul that is continually in existence. You will die. And upon your death, you will continue on. So why? This is Easter, Pat. Bunnies and eggs. Pastel colors and little plastic grass. Why in the world this bummer of a introduction? Well, because I really, 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 really want you to take this seriously. 
And there is very few things in life that, well, there's very few things in life I actually take seriously. But this is one of the things that I do take very seriously, joyfully seriously, but seriously nonetheless. And it's something that we as people need to take seriously as well. And I I think even more so as Americans, I think one of the things that has caused us so much dismay with this pandemic that's going on here amongst us is that we're not prepared for death. Americans aren't prepared for death. Americans are prepared for economic stability, which is why everyone's freaking the heck out that stocks crash. Americans are prepared for health. That's why we're so concerned about health care and who's paying for what and where and when. We're certainly prepared about our own leisure and our own pleasure, which is why we're getting money so we can go out and spend it and keep the economy going. But the fact of the matter is we haven't been prepared for the very thing that really we should be being prepared for, and that's our own demise. Beloved, will you die well? Will you? Will you die well? Will I die well? Why do I bring this up right now? Is because we look here at the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And if we don't have a right and proper perspective of what death is, then the resurrection of Christ from the dead is stunted in our understanding. It is, we, we, we kind of, our gears clog up a little bit. Or we paint this happy little picture. It's a little kid's book story of some ladies coming down with smiles on their faces. The stones rolled away. The angel's there. They run away with happiness and joy. And they, the weightiness of what actually took place is minimized. Now, don't misunderstand me, Christians. I'm not saying throw away your children's Bibles. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. But one thing that should be aware in our minds as we come to a story like this is this is radical. This has never happened before. There have been resurrections in Scripture, right? Remember that dude, they were in the Old Testament in 2 Kings and they threw him on Elijah's bones and once he hit his bones, he came back to life? I have no idea what in the world that story's about. But it happened. It was a resurrection, and they wrote about it. I personally think Jonah died when he was eaten by that great big fish, and he was resurrected when he was spit upon the, back upon the shore. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I kind of think it is. Jesus himself raised at least three people from the dead during his ministry. Remember little Tabitha, Talitha, Takumi, wake-up girl, whatever her name was, He brought her back. She was 12 or something like that. Remember the man who had died and they were on their way out of the town in that great funeral procession and the wife, pardon me, the mother of that man who had died was weeping and Jesus comes and tells her to calm down because he's just sleeping and of course he raises him from the dead and of course the most famous resurrection apart from Jesus's and all of scripture is in John chapter 12 there, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, pardon me, chapter 11, but the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And even there in that moment, as Jesus knows fully well what he's about to do, 
In fact, he said before they even went to the town, this is what's happening. He's died and I want him to be dead for days so that when we get there, you see the power of God on display. The disciples still didn't get it. I feel I've never felt more akin to the disciples than when they don't get something. (laughs) But they didn't get it. And Jesus goes there and even in that moment, he weeps. I think Jesus in his humanity genuinely, genuinely, genuinely grieved about death because death, let's be honest, death is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why I started the message the way I did. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is Adam succeeded Adam fulfilled the covenant. Adam lived up to those expectations. He fulfilled that covenant and he brought all of humanity into eternal bliss with God forever and there was none of this intermediate sin stuff. But he failed. And we grieve every single time somebody we love dies and is lost to us. And every single time, that's the image of God screaming out within us going, no, 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 no. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. This feels so wrong, so foreign. Why am I so separated? And that's because of sin. The guilt, the shame, pardon me, the 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 the. The grief is not sin, don't misunderstand me, but the wages of sin is death. That's why everyone dies. And when Jesus rises from the dead, this is so unique and so distinct in all of human history because no one rose themselves from the dead. In each and every one of those instances we bring up, God did a supernatural miracle in raising him from the dead. Jesus alone stands triumphant and distinct in all of history because he rose himself from the dead. He could not be bound by death. He could not be held by it. Why? Because he never sinned. And you see where Adam failed under that old covenant, that Adamic covenant, Jesus succeeded. In fact, look with me at Acts chapter 2. Peter actually says these, nearly these same words in Acts chapter 2. This is the very first sermon of the church age. Christ has already ascended up into heaven. His Disciples are there in Jerusalem. These godly Jewish men, along with about a hundred and so other people, are there meeting in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then Peter goes out and he preaches, and this is part of what he says. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, this is King David, thousands of years, well, not thousands, but more than a thousand years before Christ, said these words, which was our call to worship from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not to abandon to Hades or his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of all that we are wit of and of that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out all that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not say, pardon me, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Bible in ages past has been a book that has always looked forward to the redemption of God's people. The Old Testament is filled with God's covenant people being redeemed, being redeemed, being redeemed, being redeemed. The reason they needed to be re-redeemed over and over is they kept re-sinning over and over and over again. And hey, we're familiar with that quite well, aren't we? And they were redeemed over and over and over continuously. And every single time the Lord entered into history and redeemed his people, he did so in a way that would point forward to the miraculous coming of the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here David prophesies, it's interesting. If you just read Psalm 6, pardon me, 16, it certainly sounds like David is speaking about himself over and above his enemies. In contrast to those who don't love the Lord and hate the Lord. But there was something deeper going on, and it's so true with so much of Scripture. You read the Old Testament, and you see it saying something, and then you read it in light of the New Testament, all of a sudden you realize, wow, there was so much more there than I thought, than I saw, than I knew. This is why the Bible is continually refreshing as you read it, even if you've read it 198 times. 
it still becomes a joy and it still is fresh and it's still lively because it's the very words of God and the Spirit of God pointing us towards our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And here David points forward to this resurrection of Jesus Christ and the very first sermon that's preached by Peter emphasizes Jesus' resurrection. And it's so important that Jesus rose from the dead because as much as we look to his crucifixion and we're grateful for his atonement for our sins, that when he died on the cross, and he's not there on the cross anymore, that's behind me, but when he died on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath and his judgment, his fury, his vengeance upon Jesus Christ for sins for all of the people who would ever believe in him, who would ever trust in him. You see, what happened there on the cross was God fulfilling the covenant that we couldn't fulfill. Adam experienced death, separation from God. Jesus experienced separation from God. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says this not because he's surprised by what's taking place. He says it to communicate to us that he's experiencing the very pain and the very punishment that deserves, that we deserve for violating his covenant. Christ experienced the pain of violating the covenant that he never violated so that we can experience the blessing of a covenant fulfilled. God giving to us all the covenant promises, all the covenant blessings, ultimately eternal life with him in his heaven forever. He is our God and we are his people always and forever because of his death. And how do we know it's true? You're going to die. How can you have absolute assurance that upon your death, you will be received into God's kingdom with him. How can you have assurance that he is your God and you are one of his people? How can you have assurance that Jesus' words in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also are true. The answer is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, beloved. Easter Sunday, the raising of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a reason why we celebrate always on Sunday. It's because every Sunday is Easter Sunday in some sense for us as Christians. Because we're regularly celebrating the resurrection from the dead. Because this is our assurance. The reason why Peter goes here versus, I mean look, it's a fat book that he could have taken from in order to prove to us that Jesus was who he said. I mean, Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. So there's a lot to pull from that Peter could have. But what does he do? He pulls from Psalm 16. I mean, that's not the first place we would go, right? Go to Isaiah 53, probably. Maybe Psalm 22. Maybe Genesis 22. But... Peter goes to Psalm 16 because his declaration has to be one of victory over the grave. Because that's the great enemy for you and for me. 
This is where we cannot escape. We can build great kingdoms around ourselves. We can amass great wealth around ourselves. We can have great healthcare systems in place. We can have all security teams all around us all the time, everywhere. But the fact of the matter is none of that is going to save you from the grave. And as elaborate as you want to build your grave and build your tomb and build a monument to yourself, which you certainly can, it doesn't change what's in here in terms of your being born again and your relationship with God. I know that 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 I will be saved because I trust and I trust and I trust and I trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. You see, he died in my place so that I can be raised just like he was. My confidence, my utter, utter, utter confidence in all of life is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Beloved, there are very few things that I have more confidence in, which is odd because I am confident that I'm going to go outside of the church and my truck's still going to be there. I'm pretty confident that if I were on my way home and I, you know, wanted to stop through a drive-thru that, you know, my card is going to work and I'm going to get a burger or whatever, hot dog. I don't know where you get a hot dog through a drive-thru, but you get what I mean. I'm pretty confident that here, as I'm standing here talking to you, that I'm not going to drop dead. I might. Okay, I didn't. I could have. But... I'm pretty confident about many things. I'm confident the sun's going to come up tomorrow. But I can only explain to you in terms that are supernatural that because the Lord is my Lord and because I have been born again, that I have more confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead than in any of those other things that I just mentioned. And more. I have that much confidence, and we should. Now, there's going to be times and times and times where we struggle and we go through those doldrums in life, but that's what fellowship is about. One of the things that we routinely and regularly do towards one another is point people back to Jesus. I need you to do it for me, and you need me to do it for you. And we're always pointing each other back to Jesus Christ and back to his resurrection on our behalf back to our life in him, back to our hope in him. So to our text, I know it's been a long time coming, but it certainly helps as we think through this. On the first day of the week, early at dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. Remember, they had to hastily throw him in the tomb. Throw him isn't the right word, but they, they had to hastily get him in there. Right? Sunset was coming. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had to go request the body from Pilate, and they had to put him in Joseph's tomb pretty quickly. They didn't have time to do all of the ritualistic embalming practices that they would have in that time. So they were coming after the Sabbath in order to do what they couldn't do the day before or two days before. But they find the stone rolled away from the tomb. Remember that stone was placed there by the Roman soldiers at the request of the leaders of Israel because they feared the disciples were going to come steal the body. Because they believed about his words of resurrection. Not they believed he was going to raise from the dead, but they believed that that was something that the disciples were going to come and try to make happen. The disciples are hiding. 
They're nowhere to be found. But these women come to anoint the body and they were perplexed when they don't find the stone in its proper place and then they don't find the body of Jesus. Because dead people don't get up. Did you know that? I mean, you see enough movies and you see enough things. You kind of think every once in a while, maybe they get up. They don't. I can assure you, they don't get up. But the body isn't here. And all of a sudden, there are these two men in dazzling apparel. And we know these are angels from other gospel accounts. The women, of course, are frightened and fall down, which is typical when people encounter an angel. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Is that not one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture? It says so much and so little. I think people still regularly seek the dead. They look to other religions and other systems of people who have died and are gone, permanently gone. But Jesus is not one of the dead. He is one of the living. He is risen. Remember how he told you this while you were still in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to 11 and the rest. And then look at verse 12. I just love this. And Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, the chump of the Gospels. He's the man who's with Jesus the whole time. He rebukes Jesus because he's so zealous for Jesus. And he's the one who falls so catastrophically there on the night of his crucifixion or his trials before the crucifixion and his denial. Peter, oh, Peter, running to the tomb, seeing those linen cloths and being the, one of the, uh, being the first disciple to truly believe the message that's given. And we saw him just days later standing before a crowd who just days earlier crucified the Lord Jesus Christ in vengeance and fury. And he stands up and he dares with all the audacity one can muster to point at that crowd and say, how dare you kill the Messiah? But he couldn't stay dead because God determined he wouldn't stay dead. He was killed because of the foredestined plan and purpose of God so that redemption might come, but it wasn't going to be permanent. He would raise from the dead and everyone hearing Peter's words was cut to the quick. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And that's the answer the resurrection should give you. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what are you going to do to be saved? 
There's no works you can do. Christ said it is finished. So taking this book and trying to find all the good things that I can do isn't going to amount to a hill of beans. I'm not sure what that saying exactly means and what the hill of beans is. But your works aren't going to amount to it. You can do all the altruistic things. You can give money. You can have your body to be burned, Paul even says. But if you do not trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on your behalf, because he died for your sins, then you are without hope. And you will live for eternity. Oh, be sure, beloved. But it will not be with that covenant God forever. Instead, you will be in a place where you will be paying for your own sins. Beloved, the resurrection gives me confidence that my sins have been taken care of. My sins have been paid. My sins are many. My sins are lots. Past, present, and future have all been taken care of by Christ and the resurrection is the proof of that. And when he rose from the dead and these women go back and Peter runs and finds this to be true, what they said, and he goes away and is marveling, I can just imagine him going, not just scratching his head, but going, boy, what else did he say? And thinking about all of these things that have gone on in the life of Jesus and all of a sudden he's persuaded by these things that he had almost forgotten about and in his grief and his pain and his betrayal of Christ, now all of a sudden there's hope. There's hope. There's confidence. There's life. There's joy. Beloved, this is sovereign joy. The resurrection of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is the sole foundation for any true and lasting joy that anybody can possibly ever have. And oh, beloved, it's so good and so glorious. You cannot plumb the depths of the truth of the resurrection. Paul said, if we don't have the resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied and we might as well go eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow... We die. But because we have the resurrection, you might die tomorrow, but you will not die to die. You will die to live, to live, to live, to live. And beloved, as much as I love this world and I love my family and I love the life that I have here, my heart longs for home. My soul longs for eternity. The closer that I get, the more fond the thought of seeing Jesus someday becomes. Being there face to face with my God, hearing those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. Enter into the joy that's been set before you. And that joy that's been set before me is only set before me because of Christ's resurrection. Because if I have any hope in me, then my hope is only in a death like Adam's. A failure. But my hope and my confidence is in Christ and his glorious resurrection from the dead. So as you celebrate the rest of this Easter Sunday, Rejoice in the fact that Christ is raised from the dead on your behalf. Rejoice in the fact that yours is his life because his life was your life.
And he proved it by dying on the cross and rising from the dead for you, beloved. Amen? Amen. Father God, we love you. It, it's, it's such a rich and glorious truth to see that you were not content, Lord, to just let us live our lives in misery and death. And that old covenant is something that you could have just let us go in, but you didn't. You brought a better covenant, one whereby we can be saved by you, Jesus. You who lived that law perfectly, who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf and then rose from the dead to prove it to be absolutely satisfactory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace, your mercy. We love and worship you in your name. Amen.